Welcome to the Voice of Retail for the week of September 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this week's episode, an exclusive interview with Vince Guzzo, Montreal-based CBC Dragon entrepreneur and philanthropist. In a fun and wide-ranging interview, we talk about the retail and consumer environment in Quebec, his experiences during taping of his second season of Dragon's Den, how the deals he's seeing this year are different, how he determines whether he's in and out and with who, and the end of Netflix. Next, I swing over to the West Coast to catch up with Greg Wilson, Retail Council of Canada's BC Director of Government Relations. We discuss the key issues for retailers based in or operating in British Columbia. Lastly, I'll take a look at the retail news of the week. But first, let's listen to my interview with Vince Guzzo. Vince, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Um, You'll certainly be well known across the country with your uh, presence on CBC's Dragon Den but uh, for those who may not uh, who may not see the show, maybe outside of Canada, give us a little bit of sense about yourself and your your uh, your personal and professional journey and, and your business uh, pursuits as as a uh, as an entrepreneur and philanthropist. Well, you know, so we started off. I mean, the family started off uh, in, in the bar business, and then we even had some nightclubs, and then eventually, when I joined the uh, my dad and my and my mom in the business, you know, we were in the, we were starting to be in the movie business, so. Uh, I was coming out of uh, a degree in economics out of Western, uh, was in law school in Montreal, <clears throat> so I was handling all the leases, all the contractual and this and that. And so eventually, you know, one thing led to another, and I took more and more of a of a role. And then in 1996, 97, that's when I officially started um, heading all of the operations of the cinema business. And that's when we, you know, made a, a concerted effort to go up against, uh, you know, Cineplex and Famous Players, who pretty much had uh, split the monopoly of, you know, of all the major markets amongst themselves. Um, and, and now you're up to, uh, from a, a cinema guza, you're up to, I think, 19 cinemas with, what, 140 screens? Have I got that math no, I, right? No, actually, we're at, we're, we're actually 10 locations. Uh, we got two uh, two on the planning board, one in construction, uh, well, one mm-hmm. under construction. Um, we're at 141 screens, nine IMAXs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and it's all very concentrated in the Montreal, Greater Montreal area. We have right. explored. I mean, I was in Vancouver uh, last weekend. Um, I was in Calgary for a day, speaking to some, you know, some uh, for some fundraising for the Conservative Party, and then I went back to Vancouver to see some sites and, and hang around with my son, who was at a fencing tournament there. And so we're still looking at moving over uh, some of our locations and actually expanding out west. Um, a lot of people found it strange that I was going all the way to the other end of the country instead of just moving over to Ontario. But I think there's a bigger synergy. Uh, in a, um, a more of a connection, believe it or not, between BC, Calgary, and Quebec than there is really between Quebec and, and, and Ontario. Well, and, and certainly when you're in the Alberta market, the real estate might be uh, a little more reasonable at this point in time. Might be a good time to, to jump into that well, market for that reason, eh? Well, not only that, I think the other thing is because it's you know because it's a it's a boom market. In other words, it either goes extremely crazy because it's in the top of oil market booms or it's a bit distressed, right? So you're at both yeah. extreme poles of, of that market. What's interesting, though, is that they're very passionate people. You know, that's what I can say mm-hmm. about Albertans. They're the most passionate people I know. So when they fall in love with a concept, they're all in. Um, yeah. You know, you're not, you're, they're not nickel and diming you over, 
over anything. They're, they're just in the concept. And that's what's interesting. If I look at, the, you know, a, a, a Bauer Mall, it's an amazing mall. To think of that mall, it's like, you know, sometimes you sit there and you go like, okay, why, why, what the hell, man? This is, you know, <laughs> you know, like, why would anybody build this here, right? Like, I mean, it's, but when you're there and it's open, you realize there are people that go there. I mean, it, it makes money. Yeah. It's not, a, you know, it's not just one of those, um, you know, uh, by fluke uh, retail uh, successes. It was actually calculated and planned. And mm. um, I want to get back to your thoughts about uh, the business environment and the retail space, uh, you know, consumer confidence. But let's, let's talk a little bit about the new season of Dragon at Den. It's your second season, I believe, right? It's 14 yep. as yep. You, you joined in 13. So yep. um, any differences, anything, anything different to the season, I, I, you know, is in the can, so to speak, and we're all experiencing it firsthand. But tell me a little bit about your experience in uh, season 14. Well, you know, uh, season 13, I was, I was one of the new guys with Lane. So, you know, you, you can tell that there was uh, clear-cut differences between the two new guys. I mean, Lane comes from one space. I come from a totally different space. I'm actually... Mm-hmm closer to Jim's way of reasoning sometimes. I'm more of a brick and mortar kind of guy. He's more of a he's more of a uh, Michelle kind of reasoning, you know, sort of uh, what I like to say overvalued uh, uh, IT companies, you know, just pay five times more than you should be paying and don't worry about it. It's a, eventually we'll make, we'll stop burning money and somebody will buy it or whatever it is type of thing. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it always goes up. It always goes up, right? Yeah, you know, for some reason, right? So, So that's the you know, so it's, it's, there's two different ways of doing things. And, and while I, you know, I, I have to be honest on, on season 13, while I believe I was very honest and very transparent, I was n- not necessarily always as confrontational as I, as is in my nature to be. Um, mm-hmm. Season 14, uh, I mean, if you saw episode one, it, it starts off with a pretty, you know, pretty clear-cut confrontation. And in, in, in a sense, you know, Arlene started, Telling me how I should maybe evaluate, you know, maybe evaluate a company that we were talking about, and I just, you know, turned around, I guess, and looked at it, and I said, "It's my money, right?" And she says, "Yeah, okay, so you don't mind? I'll invest my money how I want." And then at a certain point, I don't know something else about, you know, being greedy, and I said, "I'm not greedy. I just don't discount my worth because I know what I'm worth." You know, and right. it was a clear, right. you know, so so in season fourteen, uh, depending on how you know they'll choose to present some of those pitches. You will you will see a, a, an even clearer difference in how we reason. Uh, 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 conflicts will will be more evident. You know, conflicts of personality, um, yeah. which 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 you know is not to say that you know there's there's bitterness. It's just I know today, and and you'll you'll notice it on season fourteen. There is I do no deals with uh, Arlene, let's say. I did a few on season 13. I, I do none on season 14. Um, just because after one season, you'll, you'll learn who you can work with and who you can't, whose style is compatible to yours or not, right? So I did a few deals with Michelle, a few with, uh, with Jim, uh, but none yeah. with Arlene, for example, and none with Lane either. So, and, and, and like I said, it's in no way a judgment on their personality or on my affection towards them on a personal level. It's, uh, I'm 50 years old. My, my business life is 20 hours a day of my, of my life. I'd like to enjoy those 20 hours. I don't want to be in a continuous, you know, uh, um, 
sure. argument with with party. You know, it's, it's a lot of people don't realize, and and I do this analogy sometimes, and I don't know who I offend if I'm offending my wife or if I offend, you know, married people in general when I say a partnership in business is like a marriage. If if you think it's going to be a nightmare and it's going to end up in a divorce, trust me, there's there's no there's no bedroom play, so there's nothing fun enough, you know, in the business partner to justify, you know, justify the 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 torture. So, right, right. Um, when you think about the pitches that you heard and the ideas, both last year and and uh, certainly this year, uh, anything that any trends, anything that's jumped out at you. In terms of um, you know, as you look back and and you know your frame as a, as an entrepreneur and what what jumped out at you in terms of what people are asking for and the ideas that they're that they're coming up with. So last year, I felt I don't know why I felt we were really uh, you know IT and 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 you know application heavy. You know, I thought you know every mm-hmm. every possible application under the sky was was being pitched at us. This year, I was actually very very happy to see there was a little more brick-and-mortar stuff. There's actually uh, uh, an amazing pitch on, um, on a whole um, design platform that designs h- homes, uh, one-level home, based on um, the trust uh, concept of, of wood-framed homes. You know, mm-hmm. And so uh, if I remember well... Um, I'm going to probably, it's probably a spoiler here, but I think Michelle and I did that deal. And I think we're looking at it. I think it's a very, you know, when do deal on it, um, a very interesting. So we, we got a lot more of, of the concrete stuff. Last year I right. felt, you know, we got, we got a, a lot of these, you know, a, a checklist application, another, another mm. dating app, a friendship app, another, uh, I don't know, app to, to do this and app to do that. And in my mind, I was saying, gee, seriously, man, like, I'd really like to get away from my phone once in a while. Like, come on, man. <laughs> you know, make something else happen. And in make fact, something physical. That's right. And in fact, I think that, you know, uh, um, season 15, 16, 17, 18, you'll probably get a huge return going back towards more of an experiential mm-hmm. product. Uh, uh, or retail experience. In other words, right. you know, I, I always like to say to people, and unfortunately, sometimes they, they, you know, they edit me out when I say that because I, I'm not, I'm not sure it can pass uh, CBC uh, code of conduct. You know, but every once in a while, I, I would yeah. tell people, I'd say, you know, the problem with your product is it's very convenient, but it's zero when it comes to sexiness. And if I right. can't fall in, and if there's no sexiness in your product, I'm not interested. It's just, it's just there's no appeal. And, and, and that's what I think is happening now, right? Is, is, uh, I think there's a big trend that's happening in the retail business, and you'll see it also on Dragon's End, where what you're getting is we had these, these sort of boring retail locations 20, 30 years ago. You know, we'll call them the Eatons of this world and whatever. And all of a sudden these retail spaces got really hurt from something that's very convenient, which is called the internet and yeah, online shopping. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem now is that everybody's going back to this uh, ideas, you know, we'll call it the Edmonton mall idea and saying, but what up a minute, mm-hmm. we can actually make retail sexy again. We just got to find the right combination. So do we, do we now still need 
40,000 square foot old Navy stores? Probably not. Maybe 20,000 will be fine. But in the meantime, now you've got to make an experience out of it. Now you've got to make it fun. Now you've got to make it about me leaving the house, you know? And, and we've gone through that in the movie business. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, my reaction on Dragon's Den was, hey, we're getting more stuff now that it, that's about the experience, that's about the story behind it and not just, it's convenient, I deliver it to you. It's a very familiar narrative. I hear retailers talk about it all the time. We know that, you know, the internet is very, it's very productive, it's very efficient, but it's not very inspiring as a shopping place. It's not, you know, it doesn't, doesn't drive experience or inspiration yeah, or impulse you know, or all those things. I use, I use the internet heavily for information. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, for example, I'm going to go somewhere. So yeah, I went to a Vancouver. So I will use the internet to tell me where I should go shopping. But I won't mm-hmm. necessarily shop on the internet mm-hmm. because it, it, it's like there's no fun, right? I mean, like yeah. I said, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm in my underwears, my pajamas, I'm in front of a blue screen, and yeah, it's convenient, sure, but, sure. Yeah. you know, it's no, you know, like, I'm not touching it, I'm not feeling it, I'm not, I'm not, I got no connection to, to, the, to the item, I got no, no passion to it, right, I, I got no, right. no, and, and, that's, and, and, and that's very important, I think that's, that is the key of what makes certain brands amazing is that, that you can feel it, right? I mean, if we look at Apple, Apple's, you know, made an art out of packaging. Yeah. You know, and making it feel like it's worth a, a million times more than what you're really paying for. But yeah. Yeah. it's part of it's part of the experience, once again. Part of, part of the retail experience. I think I think, you know, you've you've um you've laid out a really brilliant insights into how you know, you you look at opportunities and then how you drive your own business. So, last question for you: um, How are you feeling about uh, the Quebec market, specifically? I guess around consumer confidence, because you're you're a good barometer of that. You know, discretionary income, people going to the cinemas, and how are you feeling? Uh, you just talked about how you're looking at expanding. What? How are you feeling about consumer confidence these days? And you know, with a vision, I, yeah, a few I months think out so. or a year out. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the movie business, you know, I'm going to speak about the movie business because it's the one that, that you know, is mm-hmm. my core business. I mean, I mean, I have construction. I got, you know, I got medical stuff. I got, I got uh, pizzerias. But, but the movie theater is the one that really gives me the gauge, right? So right. In, in a lot of people didn't realize that at the end of April, early May, when the movie called Avengers Endgame came out, that... It was funny because somebody said to me, you know, what do you think this movie is going to make? I said, I really don't know. Maybe make a billion bucks, billion and a half or whatever. You know, I, you know the numbers weren't that amazing in my mind, right? I, I was prehand, mm-hmm. right? Pre the movie coming out. Uh, and I can tell you today that the movie is very symbolic in what it's called. You know, it's called Avengers Endgame. So it's the end of the game. And, and I think that that movie has symbolized the end of Netflix as we know it today. You know, that movie has sent a message in everywhere in Hollywood, everywhere around the world, which is basically, who would have ever paid $1.5 billion in royalties to Walt Disney for this movie? Nobody. The only guys who paid $1.5 billion in royalties to Disney are movie theater operators. 
because we made 2.4 billion and we paid. So now, all of a sudden, everybody's saying, okay, wait up a minute. Why are we breaking our heads so much to try and give Netflix movies quicker when in reality, what we really want is to maximize our revenues in the experiential life of a movie, right? Now where we got VR, we got arcades, we got food, we got, we got you know, reclinings, and we got, we got stadium seating, and we got these 24-inch wide seats and so forth. Why are we yeah. giving movies faster than Netflix when at the end of the day, A, they won't even report the attendance numbers, whatever, 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 but at the end of the day, they're, they're playing us a flat, and that's it. Yeah. So, you know, so... You know, fast forward to today, I get a call from somebody who tells me, so you're going to be playing the Irishman? I said, no. He said, but why not? I said, like, think about it. You really think Warner Brothers sold the Irishman to Netflix because they thought it's going to make a billion dollars and it forfeited $500 million? Or do you think instead what happened is they went over budget? They got to 120 million bucks, and they said to themselves, "This thing's not going to make more than 200 million, so we won't make more than 100 million. So we're going to be in the whole 20 million. Let's dump this thing on Netflix laps and see you later, guys. We got our money out, and we're good. We, you know, we just because a lot of people don't remember that the last really successful picture that Scorsese's done is what Cape Fear, because. Everybody says, you know, some people, you know, want to be a little more artsy with me. Say, well, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. Okay, that's $120 million. Yeah. It's not like nothing to brag home about. I mean, at I'll the same time. Yeah, no, but I mean, it was, look, I liked the movie. Mm-hmm. My wife didn't like the movie, but mm-hmm. I liked the movie. But I have to appreciate that the movie was not mainstream blockbuster, you know, four hundred. Five hundred million dollar box office worldwide. It did one hundred and twenty. One hundred and twenty out of fifty percent film rental. That's sixty million bucks. This movie, The Irishman, is three and a half hours roughly. Scorsese. He's got a whole bunch of guys that I look up to because I was a kid when these guys were big names. Sure. Between you and I, you tell my twenty-one year old who's in the movie business. Like, I mean, you know, his father owns movie theaters. You tell him Scorsese's got a movie coming out. He's going to say, who? who? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, like, you know, what's, who's Scorsese? Like, you know, what do I care? Mm. And Al Pacino, mm. he only knows because he met him a few times with me. De Niro only mm. because he met him a few times with me, right? So in his mind, he's saying, it's not the kind of movie I'm going to run out to watch. So I think the movie business, you know, and what Netflix has done to the movie business is it's forced, up, it's forced us to up our game. So that's an, you know that's a fascinating analogy with with broader retail trends, right? So um, you know it, it's kind of the old "don't let a crisis go to waste," right? It's um, no, that's you know, right. Yeah, you've got to really, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know because the shows, right? Because ultimately, let's be honest, right? The movies on Netflix are are not that good. I mean, Netflix doesn't know how to choose the movies it wants to produce, and the movies it buys or the movies it gets are usually my movies that are going to die at Netflix, I always like to say, right? They're going to finish <laughs> there. They're in retirement, right? So the same way some of my, um, some of my youth idols like, you know, Jane Fonda and, and, and Martin Sheen go to mm-hmm. retire, you know, at Netflix TV, call it, uh, you know, for their, their uh, episodes, you know, for their series. 
the same thing with my movies, right? They play at us, and then they go through Apple TV, and then they go through the the, the streaming plat the the pay per views, and then they end up at uh, at Netflix on the streaming platform. So those are my old movies. The truth of the matter is, what's up to the game is the series. So the the mini series that you know, the Narcos, the the Breaking Bad, the Orange is the New Black. That's what's altered people's perceptions. Saying, hey, wait up a minute, TV, because that's what. Once again, people need to remember, Netflix is TV, so TV is actually good. It's actually not that bad. Yeah. It's, you know, so yeah. now, why should I, and I always like to use this example when I, when I talk to my guys about marketing and, and the kind of movies and, you know, what should we be playing, what, what, what should people be producing? I say to them, it's minus 40 outside Celsius. I'm at home. You need to convince me why I should go into my cold car outside at minus 40, drive mm-hmm. to your theater, 12 bucks, go watch the movie, and come back out to a car that's in minus 40 temperature and it's cold again and drive back home. Right. Why? <laughs> why am I doing this? What is so special about the movie? What is so special about the event, right? So what's happened? That you can make a comparison to what's going on in the movie business to what happened to the music business. Teenagers of today are so used to not paying for anything because their parents have paid for everything. So what they're doing is they're stealing the music, right? They're not even really paying for it. Or if they're paying for it, they're not paying $20 because they're not buying the whole album. They're just buying one song. Yeah. But they're still willing to pay 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks for a live concert. So going to the movies or going to the retail store has to be that live concert experience. Because if it's just... The movie, if it's just the, the I want to download a song experience, well, mm-hmm. it's just going to get knocked off. I mean, you're not really going to get anybody to pay you big dollars right. for, you know, just. And, and so I'm very confident because I think that now, you know, the studios have started to make a connection between, hey, wait up a minute. We gave, we sold the rights to our movies to a company called Netflix. These guys have actually annihilated our, you know, DVD market. They've actually the back eliminated the market. Yeah. That's right. So they've, they've eliminated mm-hmm. all of that. So everybody now is doing their own platform, right? So you can expect mm-hmm. Apple to launch uh, November yep. 1st. You can expect Disney Amazon. to launch Amazon. Yeah. No, but it's just the studios are more important to me because, mm-hmm. you know, those are the guys that are content providers 52 weeks a year, right? So they're, they're yeah. doing content for all over the place. You know, the Amazons of this world and, the, and those guys, they're like, okay, let's get into this business. But those, the other guys, you know, the Warner Brothers, the Disney's, the Universal, they've been in this business for 100 years. So sure. for them, producing content for all kinds of segments of the population is, is part of their DNA. And now they're saying, we're going to go back. We're going to give the best of the best of our product to the movie theaters. They're going to go get maximum dollar, right? They're going to go hit that billion dollar, $2 billion box office number. We're going to get our, our cut of that, and we're, we're happy. Mm-hmm. But that will generate a snowball effect on the markability of our movies, right? And then we can put them on our own platform where we can either pay-per-view it for the first six months after the theatrical you know, window is over, or we can go straight to the streaming subscription model at, in the case of Apple, four ninety nine. Yeah, first year, I think they're including Disney's, you know, platform for free. 
So yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know so that's why it was funny that when somebody said to me, "What do you what do you think Endgame symbolizes?" And I think it symbolizes the end game of Netflix because I really like to know how Netflix is going to survive in a world of. Nine ninety nine, ten ninety nine, where the, you're the only game in town and you still can't make a profit. How are you going to survive once everybody else comes into it? But at five ninety nine or four ninety nine, or they're combining together to make sure that you stop, you know, abusing of their content, you know, and 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 so forth. So, I I think I think you know, like I said, I think the movie business is looking up. I think the retail business is looking up. I. I you know, uh, I don't think the value of real estate has gone down in any way, uh, except for if, you know, if interests are going to go up, then, you know, we're going to get a cap rate change and so forth and so forth. But or else, yeah, yeah. Uh, real estate, you know, uh, commercial real estate is, uh, is at an all time high in Quebec, right? And people are paying way more than they should be in some cases, but it is what it is. They, they're very confident. And I think that that's, for two reasons. First of all, the economy has been good for the last four years. Sure, um, sure. I think we're all expecting a recession. Uh, but also what's happening is people are spending too much time at home. I, I think, you know, when you get yourself in a position where you're now almost on your own work schedule, you don't even have to go into a, a wee space space to work yeah. for, for a few hours. You're at home. And then your mm-hmm. kids come back home. And then you're taking care I mean, seriously, are you going to like wake up, have lunch, uh, have breakfast, lunch, work at home, have dinner at home, and then even watch entertainment at home? Like, seriously? Like, at some point, you got to get out of the house. Well, not only that. I mean, you know, the biggest problem we have sometimes is we have these wonderful experts who come to tell us, you know, why people love being at home. They just seem to forget to tell us that they live in a 10,000, you know, square foot home on, uh, in Kelowna, B.C., <laughs> on the water. And, and they don't realize that the average Canadian may not even have air conditioning in every single room in his home uh, and may not even have a home. It may just be a one and a half or two and a half. So that person wants to get the hell out of the, out of that yeah. house or that apartment, yeah. right? It's that reality that we don't, that we don't always uh, factor in. You know, too many times I've bumped into bankers who tell me, but I don't understand your business because I do this, 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 and that. I go, how much you make? Make $120,000 a year. How many people do you think make $120,000 a year in Canada? What percentage of population do you think does that? So your perception means nothing to me right now. And if you're not intelligent enough to analyze it, you know, that there's a market out there. You know, it's, it's like the argument, you know, why was Walmart created? It was created because somebody said, wait a minute, not everybody wants to pay or, or not everybody can pay. Right. Top dollar for everything. There is a discount market, but we don't have to make them feel that they're cheap. We've got to discount it, but still make them feel that that's the fair price to pay for this and not that it's a discounted price. So all yeah. of a sudden, Walmart becomes the point of reference as that's the fair price. And it put a lot it of becomes, people in trouble. Right. It becomes a value story, right? It doesn't become a low price right. story. It becomes that's, a value story. I think, that's right. It's not you know, a dollarama. You know, right. it's not a general, uh, general. I forget what the the, the general store. Dollar general, yeah, dollar general. That's right. It's not. It's not that. But they, but they, all, but it's still, they all have their place, you know. right? I mean, you're you're yeah, dollar, sure. on the price point scale. You know, your your dollar Amazon, well, a great Montreal based uh, organization. Yeah. So you've yeah. got you've got retail along a whole spectrum. Um, yeah. yeah. And where people yeah. want to invest. Listen, Vince, Vince, you pulled together a lot of really interesting threads. Um, 
for me, certainly, I'm sure for the listeners, between how you view business cycles and how you view the economy and, and trends, and you really provided so much great uh, insight. So I really wanted to thank you for thank taking you. time out thank of your you busy for day. For, well, my pleasure. And, and, and thanks again for being on the Voice of Retail podcast. I look forward to uh, catching you up later in the season. Thank you. Thank you. Greg, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you today? I'm very well. Well, I'm uh, thrilled to be chitting and chatting with you all the way out in uh, in Vancouver. You and I have worked together, been colleagues, and, and uh, stayed connected over the years. But uh, what a great opportunity with uh, Retail West coming up in early October, October 16th. We're all heading out to, to Vancouver to, to touch base with you and, and get a, a sense a little bit about uh, yourself, what you do for RCC, and then um, the top issues that are facing retailers either uh, based in or operating in uh, Vancouver. But why don't we start with uh, a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, your personal professional journey and and what you do for Retail Council of Canada. So I'm the Director of Government Relations for BC for the Retail Council of Canada, and I've been in this job for six years. Before that, I worked for government mostly, um, on policy mostly, and so I have a lot of familiarity with a number of government officials and with how government works, um, my day is basically trying to explain retail issues and retailer perspectives on potential government policies to government and explaining to retailers the impact of actions government will take. Hmm. I've, I've often heard it said that um, roles like yours are really about, in some ways, explaining unintended consequences. Do you, do you experience that? as you speak, as you visit Victoria and and talk about retail issues? I think government is all about unintended consequences or government policy. Um, We spend a lot of time um, being surprised. Um, Truthfully, um, things happen that we didn't expect. Or when we go through various policy proposals and what have you and think about them, we find things we hadn't anticipated. Hmm. So I have a favorite example, if you'd like. Yeah, please, please. A couple of years ago, um, WorkSafe British Columbia, which does workers' compensation here, created some new proposed policies for storage racking. Okay. And we read that with interest. And then we determined after we read it that it would apply to every shelf and every fixture in every retail store the way it mm. was written. Now, mm. that wasn't their intention, but it mm-hmm. would have meant that every store would have had to replace all of their fixtures and, mm. and back of store shelving. And so that was a rather large unintended consequence that we managed to get WorkSafe BC to change. So they were thinking, let's um, think about or talk about shelving mostly from a warehouse perspective, right? They were they were coming at it from that perspective. Yeah, and... It wasn't lost on them that there are a number of warehouse-style stores, and their intention was to get at that sort of shelving. Mm -hmm. And they have a very um, important job protecting worker safety, um, and retail's very supportive of that. But the unintended consequence would have been that all sorts of stores all around the province would have had to replace all of their shelving, and Mm -hmm. that would have been extremely expensive. So in that particular example, um, you would go and speak to the relevant uh, department, relevant relevant ministry, and just explain. Here's uh, you may not have thought of this. Here's our perspective, and and 
um, you, there's still opportunity to amend such things uh, often, right? With a with a good sound argument uh, behind us. We have a great relationship with the policy people in that case, and we had long conversations with them. We brought in retailer experts to explain the impacts, mm-hmm. and um, as government saw the impact, so the proposal from government became more narrowed to focus in on what they. Mm-hmm really intended on focusing on. And we came up with something that I think is better for them and better for our members. I often find that, you know, I've been on both sides, you know, been in retail, been a retailer, and then been with Retail Council of Canada. And I think it's one of the things that uh, retailers, the members perhaps uh, can do more of is is, uh, is reach out to people like yourself to um, to ask questions about what the intention of things like legislation is versus what is the you know, the black letter law, so to speak, because I think there's always um, intention versus the articulation um, of it. And I th- I've often found that uh, it's been very helpful, helpful for me and in, in privacy issues, for example, to to get a better understanding of what the legislators or the drafters were thinking versus what I can see on the piece of paper. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about since we're, we kind of jumped into one issue, let's talk about uh, the top issues facing retailers either uh, based in uh, BC or, or operating in BC. Many are in both uh, in both camps. What are the top uh, couple of three issues that, that uh, take up your time and that uh, the retailers there ask you to help with? Well, I mean, there are a couple of issues that they take up, that they bring up with me every time. Is there anything government can do? And we'd, of course, like to see something done, but our impact isn't as big. Um, so two of those things are... Um, the cost for their employees of housing and transit. Mm. The cost mm. of living is a big thing in British Columbia. And what happens is that it makes it very difficult in some parts of the province to find employees. So we spend an amount of time talking about that. Um, I think the government has, this government's had some initiatives along the lines of making things more affordable, but that remains a very big challenge. So that's something where we bring it up, um, and we hope that government's able to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a couple things where we're more directly involved, um, where we can make a difference. And so one of those that I think of is, currently there's a lot of activity on the plastics file, which is to say plastic packaging, plastic single-use items, bags, straws, Utensils. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've done a lot of work there, informing government about the impacts on retail, and trying to help inform their. You know, it's likely government will have a plastic bag man, and we'd like to inform the exceptions to make sure that they work well for consumers and for retailers. Mm. I guess the top of uh, one of the things at the top of your agenda there is, and this is. Uh, come out in other conversations I've had with your counterparts, uh, John and Jim, um, from the prairies and from the Atlantic provinces, is this kind of harmonization at the provincial level or the regional level of the of the rules just to make it easier for the operators to to adhere to them versus down to the municipality. Is that an issue that you faced in, uh, in BC? It's a big issue. It's a big issue with plastics, for example. We have 10 different municipalities that have plastic bag bans at a local level. Nine of the bylaws are quite different. There's mm-hmm. one pair. There are two local governments in two neighboring small communities that have identical bylaws. 
But if you can imagine, it's very frustrating if you operate stores that are either near the boundary of a municipality Mm -hmm. or in more than one municipality to have to produce different bags for different cities. That's Mm. quite expensive and quite frustrating and can lead to a number of unintended operational issues. Right. Um, The other thing that uh, the other file, so to speak, that you and I have, have communicated on recently this year is is capacity in the ports you know so much product comes through over from the asian markets uh through the vancouver markets and and i know that's been top of mind uh to you as well what's the situation there is some labor issues that that could have closed the ports and and there is a bigger picture issue for you to think about tell us a little bit about that so the labor issue is pretty much resolved at the moment there was a longshore workers um dispute but happily that was solved so that they have a, we expect that they have a, we have longer term labor peace. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the port of Vancouver is trying to build a new container terminal. They have a proposal for a new container terminal. It's probably the most environmentally sustainable mm. um, proposal in the world. Um, but of course, any um, new large industrial development is always controversial. Sure. And so this one is controversial. But it's particularly important to retailers and to consumers because two-thirds of the of the country's consumer goods come through the West Coast ports, and most of that through the Port of Vancouver. And so ter- a container capacity is a critical issue, not only now, but for the coming years. And so this is something that our industry is interested in. Oddly, not something I get a lot of questions from individual members they're interested, they're concerned, but they're, you know, reliant, counting on RCC to take care of it for them. Right, right. Do the good work, uh, do the good work you do. So we talked about a couple of issues. Any one more, anything else that uh, comes to mind that uh, you wanted to share for those uh, retailers thinking about uh, their West Coast I think they're always. I think they're always labor issues. Um, mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. employment standards and labor code issues. This government has changed the labor code this year and the Employment Standards Act this year. Next year, they'll change the Workers' Compensation Act. Those can have cost and operational. Those changes can have cost and operational issues, and we yep. very very close attention to them because labor is a very large component of any retailer's costs. Sure, sure. Um, well, listen, this has been it's been great. Um, anything you see on the far horizon? We've talked about ones in future. I guess labor. I mean, several of these are all have long term, short, medium, and long term implications. Anything on the horizon that you you see coming in twenty twenty with your lens uh, sitting in in Victoria as you do? I think we'll see more on the environmental uh, management front. Mm-hmm. We'll mm-hmm. see more products obligated under what's called extended producer responsibility, mm. where essentially the consumer or the retailer is pay- paying for the end of the life management of the product so that it doesn't end up in landfill. That'll probably continue to be a big issue in BC alone for the next five years. And BC's ahead of other provinces, so it'll be an issue in Ontario and the, the Atlantic provinces for the next 10 that's a great that's a great point because um often uh, bc is a trendsetter in these uh cert, sort of circumstances so it's a good one for uh, everyone to watch uh from uh, coast to coast whether they have operations uh, retail stores in uh, vancouver bc 
or not. So, well, listen, um, it's been great touching base with you. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person uh, at uh, Retail West Conference coming up in Vancouver, October 16th. For the members listening, how can they get a hold of you if they have questions uh, specifically for you or, or some um, help that they need or some inquiries that they have? How can they get a hold of you, Greg? They call us at our Vancouver office. They can find the address at retailcouncil.org on the website. Yeah. Um, and uh, we are happy to take calls. We love hearing from members and actually often... Even if the member thinks it's a problem unique to them, there are other people in the business who are having the same issue, and it's useful for us to have the flag that something's an issue. Even if we're not able to deal with it immediately, mm. it's always great to know that, oh, this is a concern. We should keep, keep an eye on this. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, um, thanks so much for taking time out of your, uh, your busy day to chat with the Voice of Retail. And again, looking forward to seeing you in person in a couple of weeks. And uh, I hope you have a great uh, evening and a great rest of your week. Great. Thank you. Well, all right. Thanks to Vince and Greg for being my guests this week. And now let's hit the highlights in retail this week. E-newsletter, biggest retail weekly in Canada. And you can subscribe on retailcouncil.org for free, bit of a companion piece to the uh, podcast as we kind of curate and look at the top retail stories in Canada and around the world. And uh, let's, see, let's see, where do we kick it off? Well, of course, this was the, uh, the week where Forever 21 defied its namesake and uh, declared uh, exiting the Canadian market. Many other markets going to try and survive a little bit uh, with a few smaller stores in the U.S. market. We'll see if that pans out. But, um, you know, the, the lessons to be learned, I was uh, chatting with a couple of media outlets, are more around the changing nature of retail, the more competitive the retail has become year after year, and that there's not much margin for error. So um, I don't think the lesson there is, uh, you know, the dot-com is to blame. I think I think retail... Uh, needs to be exciting, needs to be engaging, needs to be entertaining. The product assortment needs to be compelling. Everything has to move in the right direction. And then if it's not moving in the right direction, hopefully you haven't invested too much in too many stores and you can kind of recover uh, and get back the mojo. But uh, not so much for Forever 21. So we wish them the best in the U.S. as they continue to try and reinvent that business. Uh, speaking of a great reinvention of a business, Save On Foods has done an amazing job uh, Daryl Jones has uh, has really uh, transformed that business in uh, in large and small ways into um, into a real powerhouse on the West Coast, uh, and now it's back in the news talking about uh, readjustments and executive um, insights where they're moving uh, Dan Howe, who's uh, speaking at Retail West, actually becomes the president of More Rewards, um, focusing on the loyalty program and and other moves where they're focusing on the uh, their e-commerce offering. So really a great job uh, and interesting, great retail retailer to watch on the West Coast. Um, speaking of the West Coast, online Canadian furniture, furniture retailer article continues to see explosive growth. I had to double-check the facts here. North of 50,000% growth uh, year-ending 2017. Um, oh, by the way, the first article was from Business Vancouver. This one I'm speaking of is from Retail Insider. Uh, 24,000% growth in the year 2018. So growth has been brilliant, which is, I guess, a bit of an understatement. So congrats to Article, another Vancouver-based, BC-based organization doing well, thinking of uh, Indochino, for example, that uh, we talked to Drew Green a couple of weeks ago. Um, not On the not-so-good news, uh, shoplifting up dramatically in Winnipeg, according to this article from the 
Global News, uh, where you've got up 77%. Uh, John Graham, uh, our Director of um, Government Affairs in the Prairie Province, based in Winnipeg, is chatting here and talks about, uh, you know, that at the end of the day, every retailer deals with theft, one degree or another. But on average, over $172 million is stolen from Manitoba retailers. So John does a great job of bringing that number home. Uh, pretty startling, actually. Uh, so that's uh, something. Uh, moving on to international news, The Gap. Was The Gap ever cool? It's actually a great article. Um, I'm a big fan of The Gap. You know, when I, uh, The Gap and its associated businesses, you know, 20 years ago, it was such a great place, uh, a great retail, and it has been since. Um, these things ebb and flow a little bit. And it's a great, actually, historical article that looks all the way back to when they started in San Francisco selling Levi's. Uh, and when I was at Levi's, we often talk about how we made the gap because uh, at first it, they were a Levi's retailer uh, and then decided to go down a different path. Um, I listened in actually today on another story from uh, the story from CNBC, but I listened into the conference call with the NRF, Matt Shea and, and uh, the team talking about their forecast for holiday uh, in the U.S. They're talking about 3.8 to 4.2%, which is very good. Last year it was uh, turned out to be fairly anemic in and around the twos. Uh, which surprised a lot of people, but there's a lot going on then. Uh, government shutdown looming. There's a lot going on now. There's a lot of trade uncertainty. Uh, um, consumers seem very resilient, though, in the U.S., for sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, he says, great quote here from Matt Shea, the uh, CEO of NRF. He says, the winners are the ones investing in supply chains, making shopping as convenient as possible. I guess, I mean, in some ways, an obvious statement. Uh, but nonetheless, um, very important that uh, there are winners and losers. Retail's going up, but not everyone. You know, we started off the you know the news with uh, Forever Twenty One. Not everyone is winning uh, equally. Uh, zero investment stores. This is from Forbes. How zero inventory stores like Bonobos supercharge customers and make retailers more productive. Uh, I think the really uh, you know they talk about uh, Casper and and Bonobos, which is a, a Walmart uh, brand suit supply. Uh, and, of course, unsta- unsta- unstated was uh, Indochino. So uh, check that interview I did with Drew Green, a real success story uh, in that exact model, 50 stores, showrooms, as they call them. Um, CNBC reports that Bed Bath & Beyond is closing, boosting the store closing estimates. 60 may close by the end of 2019, so they continue to readjust the fleet uh, and see if they can uh, increase the profitability of the remaining portfolio before uh, it, it before push comes to shove, becomes too late. So taking all the right steps there. I reported on this last week from Business Insider. Rent the Runway is having difficulty with their new supply chain system. It looks like they'll approximately lose about two point seven million, uh, paying customers two hundred dollars each for canceled deliveries. So fourteen uh, percent of their recorded active base. Uh, impacted 10% of impacted subscribers, uh, they could lose 10, 40, what is that, 1,400 people. Uh, anyway, so uh, we wish uh, folks at Rent the Runway all the success. We all know uh, putting in these systems is a challenge for anybody. It doesn't matter whether you're .com or legacy. Uh, these things are always a challenge, so we wish them all the best. Under uh, news for independent retailers, Vancouver-based Native Shoes launches first Toronto pop-up, so stretching out into Toronto, 82, and still running a, uh, a convenience store. So this is a fun story because this gentleman, actually, who's running the convenience store, great article from Toronto Life, is actually in uh, my mother's building, of all places. Uh, so just up the road. Uh, so it's a great uh, a great story, and uh, do read. He's 82, uh, continued to run this store, and, and uh, runs it like a tuck shop 
basically, uh, out of a, a, a condo uh, in Mississauga. Toronto Furrier, uh, who uh, flouted Sunday shopping. So Peter Magder, if those of you have been around long enough, remember uh, how he would flout Sunday shopping, got fined about half a million dollars, pretty much put him out of business. He passed away uh, this week at 83. Uh, didn't unfortunately live long enough or did live long enough to see Sunday shopping become the norm versus uh, something that you got fined out of business for in the early to mid-1990s. Uh, what else we got? Um, spotlight on digital retail, some good articles on uh, the more you know, sp- no more spend smarter for unicorns of retail that are now worth billions. This, that from Style Democracy, the uh, prior from a Canadian retailer. And uh, from Payments, and this appeared in Wall Street Journal uh, the the flesh on the bones of these rumors around Amazon expanding their U.S. grocery footprint. I put it in here under digital, and uh, you know now they're talking about stores opening as uh, you know as early as this fall. People kind of reading the tea leaves and watching for leases being signed. Um, so lots of uh, more more rumor conjecture than any truth. Uh, so we'll see what actually happens uh, with our friends at Amazon. But uh, for sure, and you can pick that up from the interview I did with Walter Robb uh, on the live stage, he kind of acknowledged from his experience, Walter Robb from Whole Foods, their former co-CEO, that indeed uh, Amazon did want to open up a new concept uh, with Go, so to speak, being the C-store convenience store at one end of the spectrum-ish, and then Whole Foods at the other. There's a big middle piece missing from a grocery strategy. That's a wrap on this edition of The Voice of Retail. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes, your favorite podcast platform. Please rate and review. Be sure to recommend it to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of M.E. LeBlanc & Company, Inc. You can learn more about me on www.meleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great week.